The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews, starting in chapter 6. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Where Jesus has gone is a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham." But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. There you go, Melchizedek, y'all, all right? So you guys are like, man, I'm glad, right? I'm glad we're here. Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to learn about a guy named Melchizedek. Um, I hope you guys are excited for, for what we're going to hear about Melchizedek this morning. Uh, truly buried in this chapter, um, you're going to find that while the, uh, the gospel gold, the Jesus gold, so to speak, maybe the nuggets aren't lying right on the surface, you've got to do a little bit of a heavy lifting to mine the good gold of the gospel out. I'm telling you that these, these hills are rich, rich with, with what you're going to find in Hebrews chapter 7. If you just read this and you're like, okay, what was, what was that all about? Um, I want to try to just give you this hook on the front end before we get into the sermon title and the main idea and get into the main part of the sermon, I want you just to remember this. Don't lose sight of the fact that the author has one goal in mind. And what is his goal? His goal is to elevate Jesus as superior above all things. And he's not doing something different right now now that he's turned to take up the person of Melchizedek. Some of us are like, I'm not so sure about this. Just, you know, hold on, it's, it's coming. I'm, I'm, trust me, what you're going to see is he is just simply laying out yet another argument to some Jewish Christians who would get this line of argumentation. What he's trying to remind them is that the superiority of Jesus extends into his priesthood. Because our main idea this morning is that the priesthood of Jesus is a superior priesthood. He's reminding them that the confidence by which they are clinging to in Jesus is not a poor confidence. 
It's actually a confidence that is secure and a confidence that they should hold firm to to the very end. Why does he need to do this? Remember, these are Jewish Christians who came out of the world of Judaism and coming out of the world of Judaism, they would know all about the Levitical priesthood. And some of them are contemplating heading back towards where they came from. And what he's trying to help them see is that when you cling to your confidence in Christ, Christ, who is our great high priest, you are not settling for second best. You're actually clinging to the superior priesthood that you absolutely need. To go back to Judaism and the Levitical priesthood would be to actually settle for something that is inferior. So he's just going to continue arguing for the superiority of Jesus by now tightening the screw, so to speak, down on the fact of Christ's superior priesthood. So if you can remember this and all the detail that we're going to work through this morning and some of the argumentation and the line of reasoning that he's going to use that just might land on us a little weird, remember, he is arguing for these Jewish Christians, you guys have not settled for second best. And while the context might be a little different for us, none of us are being tempted to go back to a Levitical priesthood settling for second best. A lot of us are tempted to settle for second best in other areas when it relates to Jesus. And so what the author is going to call us to see and believe and cling to is our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for us this morning. That the Lord Jesus would just shine as we continue to unpack this letter written to the Hebrews. So let's pray. Jesus, our prayer is simple and is sweet. We're asking that you would magnify your name. That you would be exalted in this time right now. That you would capture our attention to see and to cling to and to hold to you and you alone. That we would recognize that the fact that Jesus, you are a priest, not after the order of Levi, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek is extremely good news. So Lord, help us. Open our minds to understand the scriptures before us so that we might leave here this morning giving you the praise, worshiping you, giving you the honor that you are worthy to receive. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Well, unfortunately, what we have before us, for some of us might go, okay, this, this here is like a very, very heavy, heavy chapter, right? Chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews tends to be one of the chapters that in our normal Bible reading, we're just like, okay, there's a lot of Aaron and a guy named Melchizedek, and there's just a lot of argumentation about Levi being in the loins of Abraham, and we're just like, okay, that's just sort of weird, and what's this about? Let's move on down the line. But in doing this, what we do is we sell ourselves short if we approach chapter 7 with the idea that all these references to an obscure man named Melchizedek are, are just not worth our time, our energy, and our effort. Right? Three times now the author has linked the greatness of Jesus' priesthood to the man Melchizedek saying of Jesus, you, Jesus, are a high priest forever after the order of this man, this priest, whose name just happens to be Melchizedek. 
But what the author has yet to do for these Jewish Christians is to actually pull the curtain back and substantiate that claim in detail. He has said, Jesus is great, priesthood superior. After all, he is in the order of Melchizedek. Now what he's going to say is, let us open our Bibles and verify this truth by letting God's word speak and reveal for us why, when I tell you Jesus is superior in his priesthood, I'm not telling you a lie. Because see, if you were to come to this chapter, chapter 7, and say, okay, what is this all about? This chapter is ultimately, in essence, just the author doing what I told you he was doing a little while ago. He's just elevating Jesus above all things. But on the other hand, what we could say is this chapter is more specifically the author narrowing in with extreme laser focus upon the priesthood of Jesus in order to just simply establish the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. Now, what you need to know is this. Chapter 7 is one big argument. We are dicing the argument in half right now. So next week, we will follow up the remainder of chapter 7 to see just how much more he has to say about Melchizedek. But this morning, before he gets to 11... Verse 11, in the remainder of the chapter, he needs to build a foundation. And the foundation in these first 10 verses is just simply this. Listen, you must know Jesus is a superior priest. His priesthood is far above the rest. Now, the question that you might be rolling around in your mind is this. Okay, Pastor Jonathan, you keep telling me the priesthood of Jesus is superior. Who gives a rip? Who cares? Like, why should I care right now? That Jesus is a superior priest. What difference does it make whether or not Jesus' priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, whether it's after the order of Levi, that it's superior, that it's inferior? Like, why should I even have a care? Why do I need to pay attention for the next 40 minutes or so right now? Like, hopefully some of us are wrestling with this right now because, again, the context of, of where we're at is different from the context of the original audience. The original audience were Jewish Christians contemplating loosening their grip on Jesus and going back to Judaism. That's not our context. That's not the struggle that you and I have this morning. At least I don't think it's the struggle that you and I have this morning. So the answer to the question, well, who cares this morning whether or not the priesthood of Jesus is superior or not? Why should it matter? What difference does it make? The answer comes down to this. The answer has everything to do with the author giving us confidence to cling to Jesus no matter what. It matters because the author is simply saying here is a dose of confidence that your faith in Christ is not a faith that is just based upon nothing. You didn't settle for second best when you proclaimed Christ as Lord and Savior. Your confidence is not a diminishing confidence because, after all, Jesus is just an inferior nobody who didn't really accomplish a lot of things, and he can't sympathize with us. He has no compassion for us. He didn't purify us from our sin. He's saying, saying, no, 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 no. Your confidence with each argument that he keeps rolling out, your confidence should go up, and then it should go up, and then it should go up, and then it should go up. Why? So that as you keep getting these doses of confidence about the superiority of Jesus, it just fuels you to keep clinging to 
to Jesus as you keep going on to maturity, which is what he keeps encouraging us to do. So while we may not here this morning be tempted to abandon Jesus to go back to a Jewish Levitical priesthood, all of us have been tempted this past week to go back to settle for something second best other than Jesus. Yeah? Am I the only one in that boat this morning? Had a lot of things laid in my lap. I was like, why don't you just cling and put your confidence in this thing, not Jesus? So right now, all of a sudden, the context of the Jewish Christians that were first being written to has just now actually become our context. The variable is just playing out differently, but the denominator is the same. While they were being tempted to say, you know what, Jesus, ah, I'll go back to this. And the author says, that is settling for an inferior second best reality. All of us have been tempted this week to do the exact same thing. So now all of a sudden Melchizedek and his priesthood matters for us this morning. Because the author is just looking at you as just as he looked at those Jewish Christians and he's just saying, listen, you need to scoot to the edge of your feet. You need to buckle down for 40 minutes because we're about ready to work some Bible skill. Because remember, the author knows what he's about to say is some pretty tough going. Remember how he introduced Melchizedek back in chapter 5, verse 10? He says, Jesus You know, Jesus, he is after the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever. But then he says, about this, about what? About Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say, but it is hard to explain, he says. Remember that? And he says, you become dull of hearing. You ought to be teachers. You need solid, you need milk when you should be on solid food. And then he says, you are unskilled in the word of God. He recognizes we're about to sharpen the skill of the Bible because the Melchizedekian priesthood confidence boost that he's about to lay on us isn't like just Sunday school material. It's hefty. It's big. It requires some mental lifting. You have to scoot forward a little bit. You have to You have to tune things out. You need to pay attention in order to skillfully navigate Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 and the promises of the prophets concerning a king and a priest of righteousness. All this stuff, you've got to sort of know your Bible. You've got to be sort of more of a Bible ninja, less of a Bible toddler. And so he says, you guys are more Bible toddlers, so we're going to pump the brakes a little bit. He's addressed all that. Then he comes back, and it would be fun just to know. It's like, dude, you just told us this was hard to understand, and you weren't quite going to go there. And then all of a sudden, apparently, he's like, yeah, let's just go ahead and go there anyways. And so he's like, here you go, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And you're like, okay. Well, at least he warned us first, right, that this is some, some heavy lifting coming, coming our way. So what is he doing? Confidence. He's giving us confidence. He's bolstering our confidence that when you clung to Jesus by grace through faith, you did not settle for second best. Confidence that our great high priest is the stable anchor of our eternal hope. He wants you to have that confidence. Confidence that when we hope in him, we're not settling for second best. Confidence that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Confidence that we need no other priest to represent us before God. For he alone is the superior priest we need. Remember the role of the priest. What's the role of the priest? The role of the priest that these Jewish Christians would know would be to take all the people, people of God, and they need to have a representative who can step into that role as priest and say, all these people, I'm representing them before God. 
And so if Jesus is going to be the fulfillment, the great high priest that we need to represent us before God, we want him to be superior in that role, yes? And he says right now, buckle up, because I'm about to show you, he is superior. So let's think about Melchizedek. Two points are going to be made in order to press home the truth that the priesthood of Jesus is a superior priesthood. It's really for all the verses and the language and the loins and the ancestors and Levi's and Melchizedek's and genealogies. The author is really just making two points this morning. Two points. And point number one is this. We need to know that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. This is going to help establish the superior priesthood of Jesus. The truth that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So look what he says there starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, also priest of the Most High God, what did this Melchizedek do? He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, that is Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Here's some more information on Melchizedek. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So the question we can begin with is this. Who is Melchizedek and what does he have to do with our confidence in Christ? Let's try to unfurl furl that conundrum right there, okay? We can begin answering that question by recognizing first that Melchizedek was a real person. He's not some apparition. He's not some ghost. He's not some angel in bodily form. I'm even arguing right now that he's not a theophany. He's not some pre-incarnate version of Jesus. Melchizedek is a real man, flesh, blood, just like me and you. We are told in these verses which come out of Genesis chapter 14. I posted this week on Slack. I encourage you to go read Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 because in all of the Bible, there's like five verses that talk about this guy. Four verses in Genesis chapter 14 and a verse in Psalm 110, and then you don't see him again until Hebrews chapter 5, 6, and 7. So he's a pretty obscure guy. But what we can learn about him, according to Genesis 14 and Hebrews 7, is that by translation of his name, his name means king of righteousness. Literally in the Hebrew, Melchi Zedek just means king, Melchi Zedek, righteousness. Like his name literally means, I am the king of righteousness. And then we are told that he ruled as a literal king of a city named Salem, Salem is a word that means peace. Many commentators argue that this Salem would later become Jerusalem. And so now we have Melchizedek, king righteousness, ruling as king peace. Moreover, this king was not just a king only. He is also a priest of the Most High God, making him as a priest king an extremely, extremely unique figure. 
So already, if you just unpack the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, with this information, the author is inviting us as he lifts the curtain to reveal that when you hear about this person, king righteousness, king peace, ruling as a priest of the Most High God, there's something extremely special going on with this Melchizedek and then the forward march from him to Jesus. Like I said, this description comes from Genesis 14, but the only other place we see Melchizedek pop up in the Old Testament, like I said, is in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. It's a psalm of King David where King David in that psalm predicts a coming figure, a coming Messiah-like figure, who in that psalm, he says, will not only be a king, but will also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he pops up in Genesis 14, dies away. Hundreds of years go by. He pops up in a singular verse in a psalm from King David talking about a priest king like Melchizedek who's going to come. That psalm falls off the radar. Hundreds of years go by. And all of a sudden, he pops back up on the radar here in this letter being written from the author to these Jewish Christians. And so when you fast forward to our chapters this morning, our verses this morning, the author is just simply telling us that Jesus Christ is the coming priest-king figure that David was talking about. Like, that's the point. He says, when David wrote in Psalm 110 about this priest-king figure to come, I'm telling you, Jesus is this one. That's what he's telling these Jewish Christians. So what you can say then, in other words, is that this mystery man of Genesis 14, whom David mentions in Psalm 110, was actually a type of the Christ who was to come. Melchizedek is a typological figure, to use a Bible word, a big theological word. He was the shadow that you're supposed to look at and go, ah, man, like I see his life, I see his actions, I see what's going on in this setup, and it just looks like there might be something more. This shadowy portrait of Melchizedek in this moment seems to launch, invite us to launch forward beyond him, and when you talk about biblical typology in the scriptures, that launching forward is meant to launch forward and find its culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see this in figures like Joseph, figures like King David, figures like Melchizedek, figures like the day of, or in ceremonies like the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, the celebration of the Passover in Exodus 12, Moses lifting up the bronze serpent who Jesus says, that's pointing forward to me being lifted up on the cross. You see all these types, these shadows pointing forward that are meant to launch their tentacles down through the ages and culminate in a single fulfilling person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is one of these people. Now what this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean Melchizedek is Jesus but that he is a figure who points forward to Jesus and what he would do. So, listen, to hear about Melchizedek, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, Hebrews 7. To hear about Melchizedek, to hear about a priest king of peace who rules as king righteousness, this language is meant to arrest our attention and run our minds forward right 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. For the scriptures tell us, Jesus is our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4, whose name shall be called Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is our King of Kings, Revelation 19, who executes justice and righteousness, Jeremiah 23. So now all of a sudden you've got New Testament references, Old Testament references, prophetic literature, the Psalms, obscure interactions with Abraham and a guy that has a four-verse interaction at the very beginning of the Bible, all of these things are running forward, and now you can sort of see why the author's like, uh, these things can be hard to explain. And you have to be really skilled at your Bible to be able to grasp what's going on here because this just doesn't lie right on the surface. But if you pull the curtain back, if you just do a little bit of digging, what you unearth is phenomenal, confidence-boosting, Jesus-exalting gold, so to speak. So Melchizedek's name, the author says, points beyond himself to Jesus, but he also, Melchizedek also helps to establish the superiority of Jesus by his interaction with Abraham. So again, if you go back to Genesis 14, we learn that Melchizedek met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the king. So uh, if you remember, Lot got scooped up, got carried away. Abraham says, not on my watch. He scoops up all of his mighty warriors. He goes and he battles some kings. He wins the victory over these kings. He rescues Lot. He rescues Lot's family. He rescues all the possessions that were stolen in the raid. And as Abraham is coming back from the victory, guess what happens? Good old Melchizedek, king of Salem, comes out and meets him. And what happens in that interaction is... Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then Abraham in return says, here is a tithe, a tenth portion of all this stuff. Here you go, Melchizedek. And what this interaction portrays is that the Melchizedekian priesthood was in full operation in Genesis 14. Why? Because he's the priest of the Most High God. And as the priest, he's the one who blesses Abraham and he's the one who blesses God on Abraham's behalf for the victory that God gave to Abraham. What's the point? The point that the author is trying to make to these Jewish Christians is simply this. Long before Aaron and the Levitical priesthood showed up on the scene, God had a priesthood in operation. He had a priesthood in operation. What priesthood? The Melchizedekian priesthood. So long before Aaron and the Levites make an appearance, we see that there was another priesthood operating on the scene. A priesthood not after the order of Levi, but a priesthood established after the order of Melchizedek, who, verse 3, is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, if you want to spin a, spin a community group out, brew an extra 12 pots of coffee, wax eloquent on this verse. Because if I just said he's a real man, as I believe him to be, but he's a man that has no father, no mother, no genealogy, no beginning of days, nor end of life, you're going to go, oh, okay, what's that about? You see, as a literal, physical, historical person, Melchizedek would have had parents. He would have had a birthday. He would have had a date of death. But the author's point is that the way Melchizedek is presented in Scripture, this is why I asked you guys to go and read Genesis 14. Tons of genealogies. This 
This person begat that person, and that person begat this person, and this is their lineage, and this is where they come from, and this is their father and great-grandfather, and these are the people who came from them. You see that tattooed all over Genesis. Guess who you don't see that about in Genesis? Melchizedek. The guy just literally pops on the scene, seemingly out of nowhere, blesses Abraham, receives the tithe, and then, boop, just disappears off the scene. And it's just like, where, where, where did he come from, and where did he go? Like, what, what was that interaction all about? He appears on the stage of history with no recorded genealogy, no record of his death. Furthermore, there's no record that his priesthood ended and then passed on to anybody else. So the author is saying here that, listen, even in the silences, God speaks. I was helped with that point there by Alistair Begg. He said, even in the silences, God is speaking here. Because when you go to Genesis chapter 14, you don't see Moses making that argument in Genesis 14. But the author, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is saying this. The fact that no one gave him a genealogy, the fact that there's no lineage, the fact that there's no birthday, the fact that there's no death, the fact that there's no, Pastor Tom became a priest after that, after Melchizedek, and then it was, you know, and it was Charles, and it was Brady, and all down the line, or whatever. The fact that none of that stuff is there is actually saying something to us. Why? How can he make that argument? He's making that argument because Melchizedek is a type of the Christ to come. And he's pointing forward to Jesus. He becomes a very effective type of Christ, he says. Melchizedek, end of verse 3, resembling the Son of God as he continues a priest forever, just like Jesus. Now remember, the author draws all of this, what we just said, out of Melchizedek's like four-verse interaction with Abraham out of Genesis 14. And he's doing this, says the author, not only to establish how Melchizedek resembles Jesus as a type of the Christ to come, but remember, he's also doing this to establish before his Jewish audience that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. So here is argument. He's saying, guys, listen, if we can establish and come to the point where great Abraham recognizes that he was inferior to greater Melchizedek, then what we can say is that the priesthood that would flow from great Abraham should then be inferior to the priesthood that flows from greater Melchizedek. Because you got to understand why he's driving it at this way. Who is Father Abraham to the Jew? He is the end-all, be-all. Abraham was the great man. Abraham was worthy of honor. Abraham was held in high esteem, great prestige. But notice that when Abraham, the father of the faith, has this interaction with Melchizedek, and you were to ask maybe young Jewish boys and girls, who should have given the blessing in that interaction? The natural intuition would be great father Abraham. He's the one worthy of the double honor that should have given the blessing in that moment. But what happens? It's not him that gives the blessing. Actually, someone blesses him. Who should have received the tithe in that moment? Receiving the honor of receiving the spoils there. The young Jewish boy or girl might say, well, of course, Abraham. He's great. He was worthy of receiving that tithe. But guess what? He didn't. He didn't receive the tithe, he gave the tithe. 
indicating that in that moment, great Father Abraham recognized he was in the presence of someone far superior, far greater than himself. And the author wants to go, yes. Like, if you guys have tracked this far, he's over here. The author's fist pumping because he's like, that's it. Now, if we can say Melchizedek and Abraham, let's also recognize a priesthood flows from Melchizedek, a priesthood flows from Abraham, and because Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then what we can also say is the priesthood is greater than this priesthood. That's going to be the argument right now, okay? So, the author's key point is this, Melchizedek's priesthood superior to the Levitical priesthood. So if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, it's true to say that his priestly order is greater. And this superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood makes all the difference in the world. We're swinging now full circle back to the very first part of the sermon that I was giving to you guys. Because just think about it. If the author was consistently saying Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he would come and say, but you know, actually the Melchizedekian priesthood is really inferior to the Levitical priesthood. All of us would go, so who gives a rip that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek? It's an inferior priesthood. Nobody would care. But he's like, we should have a care. It makes all the difference in the world that Jesus is not a priest after the order of Levi, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek because, as the author is about to say, Melchizedekian priesthood is superior. You want Jesus to be a priest in this order, not this order. So let's talk about that and show why I can say this. The first proof that he's going to roll out is that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior because great Abraham gave tithes to greater Melchizedek. So you're scratching your head, and you're like, okay, I guess, right? Like, you mean he walked the aisle after a service, and he put some money in a bucket kind of thing? Like, what, what's that have to do with anything? You know what I mean? Like, that's the point. That's the point he's making. But remember what we just said here. In the Jewish mind, in interactions between two great men like this, there was been a recognized social rule there, I guess, going on where it's not just like you go and say hello and hello and hey, you need some cash, all right, yeah, thanks, and here's a couple bucks for you and you just exchange money, that kind of thing. There was this recognized order of who would give the blessing and who could receive a gift. And the author's just saying one proof that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior is the fact that great Abraham gave tithes to greater Melchizedek. Verse 4, see how great this man was, who? Melchizedek, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So as the patriarch of faith in God, Abraham stands as a character worthy of great honor. But for great Abraham to give a tithe to greater Melchizedek reveals that Abraham recognized just how much greater this priest king truly was. Verses 5 and 6 are the author arguing, guys, you know how this normally works with tithes. That's what he's saying. He says, you guys know how tithes typically work, the usual tithing system. The usual tithing system is one where the Levites, the Levitical priests, were given tithes to them. For it was descendants of Levi who had a commandment, verse 5, in the law to take 
receive tithes from the people. In other words, by God's decree, Levitical priests were in the business of receiving tithes, not in the business of giving tithes. Like, that's the point right now. If you could show, I belong to the tribe of Levi, and I have the qualifications to be a priest, what is true of you? You could say, this thing is true of me. By God's decree, my source of salary and sustenance and livelihood is this. People give tithes to us. We do not give tithes to people. But in this particular interaction with Melchizedek, says the author, we see something entirely different. For we see this man, verse 6, Melchizedek, who does not have his lineage, his descent from Levi, he's actually receiving tithes. So here's someone receiving tithes that should be only for the Levites, but here he is not of the descent of Levi. And he's receiving tithes not because he was a Levite, but because of actually how great he was. His superiority is the point. And the fact that he received tithes from Abraham means Levi, who normally, verse 9, receives tithes, gave tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The point is simply this. In this interaction with Melchizedek and Abraham, a giant reversal has taken place. What you would expect is Abraham to be on the end of receiving tithes, not giving them. But the fact that it was Abraham giving tithes and not receiving him means that even his lineage, it was as if Levi, the ancestral priesthood Levi, and Aaron and the priests that would fall after him were in Abraham. In that moment, says the author, it's as if the Levitical priesthood was dumped on its head. It was reversed because in that moment, instead of receiving a tithe, they were actually the ones giving tithes to a superior priesthood. And that's just the point he's trying to make right there. You should come away from this and go, okay, so maybe this tithe thing isn't just sort of like a who gives a rip moment. It's actually a really solid proof that between the priesthoods interacting between Melchizedek and Abraham, one is proving to be superior and one's proving to be inferior. One's greater, one's lesser. The second proof he says that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior is that great Abraham was blessed by greater Melchizedek. So not only did Abraham give a tithe, but Abraham was blessed. So just looking at the back half of verse 6, it just says, but this man, Melchizedek, blessed him who had the promises. That's Abraham. And in case you haven't figured it out yet, he says in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Again, these Jewish Christians would know that in their day and age, not just everyone could give a blessing. You see examples of this in the Old Testament. Remember when, let's see, it's Isaac had Jacob and Esau. What made Jacob so sneaky? He stole the what from his brother, from his dad? He stole the blessing. That was a key moment. This wasn't just sort of like you sneeze and I'm like, God bless you, Tom. And I just sort of like toss one. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something intricate, intimate, very important, ancestral, passing along the blessings of God in a very covenantal sort of way along to the people. It's something the greater does to the lesser. 
And the author is saying that this responsibility of giving the blessing was a special act reserved for the greater in the relationship. So again, the fact that Melchizedek is the one who gave the blessing to Abraham reveals that Melchizedek is obviously greater than Abraham. Therefore, he's greater than Levi. Third and last, he says, the last proof the author shows that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior because it is eternal. So Melchizedek gave the blessing, he received tithes, but then also Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. You saw this first hinted at at the back part of verse 3. If you look back over there, verse 3, resembling the Son of God, he, Melchizedek, continues a priest eh, for about two decades and then he's done. No. Continues a priest. (laughs) We've been watching the Sandlot, and all I can think of is squints going forever. For, like right when he's talking about hurricane. Yeah, okay, sorry. I thought that would land. It lands with my boys. We've been watching it, so you guys are welcome there. A priest. It continues forever. Because remember, is it true that Melchizedek lived forever? Of course not. He was just a man. But the way he shows up in Scripture, he pops on the scene, pops off the scene, and you never see anything about him dying. And the author is saying, man, there's, what's that about? There's something... There's something typological about that. Here is a priesthood that is portrayed in Scripture as just going on forever. He substantiates this truth in verse 8 when he says, In one case, Levi's descendants, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case of Melchizedek, tithes are received by one, here it is, whom it is testified that he lives. So why is Melchizedek's priesthood superior? Simply because it is an eternal priesthood. In the Old Testament days, priests would begin their duties at the age of 30. They could do it for 20 years, and then they had to stop at the age of 50. Very limited, non-eternal reality ascribed to the Levitical priesthood. The author is just simply saying, notice that with the Melchizedekian priesthood, there is no such restriction placed upon him. Levitical priests are mortal men who die. Only Melchizedek's priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus, is everlasting. So, here we are. We're around in third. We're about to slide into home. I want you to ask yourself this question. In light of all that we just said, which priesthood would you rather have representing you? That's the question. Which priesthood would you rather have representing you? That's what the author is laying before these Jewish Christians, sort of going, I don't know about this Jesus priesthood. Are are we really getting the better deal with him? I'm sort of tempted to believe that I'm getting the better deal with not Jesus over here. And he's like, no, 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 lay this all out, the greatness and the difference between Melchizedek and Abraham and the eternality and the tithe and the blessing, evidence, confidence, evidence, confidence, evidence, confidence. When I am calling you to hold fast to the hope that you boast in, the hope of eternal rest rooted and grounded in your great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, I'm not calling you to cling to second best. I'm not. Take confidence. Which priesthood would you rather have representing you? That's the question he's putting before these Jewish Christians. That's the question I put before us. Truly, we have a great high priest superior in his priesthood. His priesthood isn't second best. His priesthood is the best. Therefore, the invitation for you and me from these verses this morning is to see that Christ is superior to any ordinary priest. We need no other representation before God. 
We need no other representation before God. What is your hope of right standing before God on the day that you die? In Hebrews 9, we're going to read that it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. And you're going to stand before God. The consuming fire, he's going to call him in Hebrews chapter 12. Who do you want representing you in that moment? An inferior priesthood or a priest of a superior priesthood? Sign me up for option B, please. That's what the author is saying. Cling to that reality. You don't need any other representation before God. We try to lean on all kinds of things, hoping that if we lean on this thing, not Jesus, second best, inferior, that we lean on it strong enough, leaning on this inferior, second best, not Jesus reality is what will represent us properly before God. And he's saying, don't, don't cling to that. Cling to the great high priest who is eternal, perfect, superior in his priesthood. He is perfectly able to represent you before God. We have an eternal priest king who laid down his life as the wrath-absorbing substitute we need for sin. Jesus is the better Melchizedek. Jesus is our king righteousness who says of himself, Fear not, I am the first, I am the last, I am the living one. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And upon his throne of grace, guess what you have? Upon the throne of grace, you have not only king righteousness, but you have king peace ruling on the grace or on that throne of grace. And what does king peace beckon you to do? He beckons you to come and receive mercy. King peace beckons you to come and find grace to help in your time of need eternally. Why? Because king peace is also the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Truly, we can say of our priest king from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are God. Friends, the priesthood of Jesus is superior, absolutely superior. So the question is, are you trusting in him alone for your eternal righteousness and peace? King righteousness, who is king peace, he alone can offer you the righteousness you need and the peace that can only be found in him. For these Jewish Christians, the question to them and I think to us is, who are you going to lean on for that eternal righteousness and eternal peace? Some of us are tempted to go to something second best. The author is encouraging us to cling to king righteousness, king peace, trusting in him for the eternal righteousness and peace that we need. Let's pray. Christ, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you lead us to see how even the heavy, meteor portions of scripture that can just be dense reveal how much we just need from you. And what we need is that eternal righteousness and peace. 
So Jesus, as we turn to a time of response, Lord, I'm just asking that you would draw us to contemplate what is a response to what we've just heard about look like. For some of us, the majority of us, my guess is it's going to look like this, responding with worship. But for others of us, it might be responding with coming to Christ for salvation for the very first time. Lord, move us to respond in ways appropriate. It's in your name I pray. Amen.